From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. There may have been times when, as black people, we didn't feel proud of that food history. At Selma, I went back in time and looked at this history and said, I'm not ashamed of soul food. I'm proud of it. This is part of our heritage. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And we're back. If you're a regular listener, thanks so much for tuning back in. And if you're new to our show, I hope you're excited to hear some conversations with great cookbook authors. And let's jump right into today's conversation. I'm super excited. Today, we're talking cookbooks with Carla Hall. If you've watched TV in the past few years, you've probably seen Carla. From her time on Top Chef to co-hosting ABC's The Chew, Carla has become, in the words of food writer Charlotte Druckmann, the most visible black person in food in the United States. And now she's back with her latest cookbook, Carla Hall's Soul Food. Now, Carla's whole approach is to dispel the myths around soul food, namely that eating it will eventually kill you. Wrong. The book leads us through more than 120 recipes and a culinary road trip through the South to show us that soul food can be, of course, both everyday eats and celebratory meals. Now, in today's conversation, we're talking with Carla about that road trip, about her path to becoming a chef, and how she's using her platform to tell the food stories of Black Americans and her own ancestors. Plus, in today's episode, we're chatting with Bonnie Benwick of The Washington Post about the top-selling cookbook of 2018 that barely made a blip in food media. And as always, we're chatting with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. All that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Carla Hall joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Carla. How are you? Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. First of all, I love the name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thank you for having me. Of course. So we're here to talk about your third cookbook, Carla Hall's Soul Food, Everyday in Celebrations. So tell us a little bit about what you wanted to accomplish with this book, and in particular, focusing on soul food. I am celebrating the fact that I am unapologetically in love with soul food. And I'm not calling it Southern food. I'm not calling it comfort food. I'm calling it what it is and showing people that it is more than what you think it is. There are two sides to the coin. So there are the celebration dishes, which everyone knows, the mac and cheese, the fried chicken, the um, smothered pork chops, candied yams, all of that. And then there are the everyday dishes that people had, the the food that I grew up eating, the food that my grandmother made um, that was separate from the holiday meals that we had. You say you're calling it soul food and not Southern food, and you make an important distinction there Uh in your book. Yes. What is the distinction between soul food and Southern food to you? That distinction is black cooks. Hmm. I mean, I'm saying that um, the difference between soul food and Southern food you know, are black cooks, but that doesn't mean that you have to be black to make this food. I am establishing where this cuisine came from. Mm. And um, soul food really is the basis for American cooking. Yeah. And I read that this book was in some part, at least in some small part, inspired by you did a DNA test or you mm-hmm. looked into sort of your ancestral heritage and that that in some part was an impetus for this cookbook. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and what that was like to sort of learn more about your ancestors and where they came from? Mm-hmm. So I did my, the first time that I did my 
DNA test was about eight years ago. Okay. And it was with African ancestry and African ancestry has the largest database of West African DNA. And so I'm able to find out what tribe my ancestors are from. So the first time that I did it was about eight years ago. And I found out that my family are Yoruba from Nigeria. And then five years later, I did my dad's side and found out that his people were the booby people from Bioko Island. And there's uh-huh. also um, um, DNA from Ghana as well on my mother's side. Okay. And then um, on my dad's side, because we were doing the patriarchal and the, ma- the matriarchal side, there is Portuguese as well as Spanish. So I was thinking, gosh, what does my personal terroir or my personal DNA look like on a plate? Yeah. And we see a lot of that in this book. We see some of the Portuguese influence and some of the recipes. Uh-huh. Um, was that all information that you, how much of that information was new for you as you're looking back at your ancestry? No, it was, it was totally, totally new. new. It was all new, especially the por- Portuguese and the, the Spanish. Okay. And, and even knowing where in Africa my ancestors were from. So Bioko Island is off the coast of Cameroon. And this little country is so small that only three slave ships came from that little country. So when you go to the African American Museum in DC, mm-hmm. where there is one wall where they list all of the slave ships. Right. And it was Michael Twitty who was there to do the reveal for me. Sure. And he was saying, well, one of these slave ships, your ancestors came in on one of these slave ships. And I never thought about it, but I was like, wow, that's powerful. You know, to drill down. It's not just like where my ancestors came from, but it's like my ancestors, like when they came here mm-hmm. and what, what ship they came on. I, for me, and this has been a journey for me too, just with this book. And so even, um, a year after it was actually finished and before it gets back out to the public, I was thinking, wow, my ancestors were chosen to come here for their skill set. And when you look at slavery in that way, even though it was a horrible, horrible time, but the best and the brightest were chosen to come here for a particular reason. And that was the rice trade and all of these other things that, um, that, that people were going to turn into an industry. Now, I want to go back. I want to talk Mm -hmm. more about your journey through your ancestry and through the road trip that you Mm -hmm. took to do this book. But I want to actually go back a little bit first. So you grew up in Tennessee. Yep, in Nashville. In Nashville. Went to Howard for college. Yep, yep. Majoring in accounting. And at the time did not think, obviously, maybe with your accounting major, that you were going to go into food professionally. Not at all. And then you went to Europe to model? Yes, and that's sort of when the pull of food came in. Am I, am I pegging that at the right time or that's when did exactly you sort of right. feel that? Okay. That's exactly right. Um, and it's, and I, and I still, even, even that's when I started to hang out in kitchens because I loved food, mm. but I was also from a family where both of my grandmothers cooked very well. Even though okay. my mother didn't cook, didn't like to cook, my grandmothers cooked. So I didn't really have to go into the kitchen. I'm like, okay, sure. call me when the food's ready. Right. Deuces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in France, that's when I was hanging out in the kitchen and, and actually feeling the socialization that happens in the kitchen, which I had never thought about before. Yeah. And you had cravings for your grandmother's cooking, right? Yes. What, what yes. were you craving? Like, what were some of the things, if you remember, that were coming to mind? I was craving her pound cake. Uh-huh. I was craving... um collard greens, 
chicken pot pie. I was craving um, just fried chicken. Those are those are the things that I was craving. I was yeah. even craving Oreos, which has oh. has nothing to do with my grandmother. But sure. <laughs> I don't even I didn't even, at the time I knew that I didn't like Oreos. It was just the thing that I wanted that I knew was definitively American. So you're in Europe, and and that is that when it really clicks for you though. Do you do you leave modeling like intentionally to come back and pursue cooking, or how do you no. sort of make that career shift to culinary school, catering, everything that sort of came next? So. The, the one thing about my life and for every change that I made, I was running from something. I wasn't okay. running to something. Mm-hmm. I was running from something. And I, and I make that distinction because the more that I look back, I, I didn't feel very clear about what I wanted to do. But once I'm in the thing, I want to do well because I'm competitive with myself. So I had come back from Europe. My mother got sick. So it, I didn't come. Because I wanted to come back. Okay. You know, my mother was sick. So I was sure. like, okay, let me go and stay with you. Okay. You're better now. So let me go to DC where my sister lives. And then I'm just sitting there and, um, like, what am I going to do? And my sister was having a baby shower and I said, Hey, let me make the food, uh-huh. you know, because I've been cooking for people. And she's like, what? Because n- nobody knew that I was cooking when I left. Okay. So everybody's like, wait, you're cooking because the last <laughs> time they, knew that I was cooking. I was making a tomato soup with four cans of tomato paste. So (laughs) this is that girl. Right. (laughs) And you come back from Europe and you're just like, (laughs) Hey, let me make coronation chicken salad. Right. Right. So I did that. And it was out of that, that I said to a friend who lived in Paris, Oh, I have some leftovers. Can I bring them to your office? Yeah. And take, bring your lunch. And then you go to culinary school. Right. At 30. So that's five years later. Okay. So you do five years of catering. Right. Of lunch delivery service. Well, I would make sandwiches and I would put them in a bassinet and I would go walk around to hair salons, doctor's offices, barbershops and sell sandwiches and salads and all this different stuff. Yeah. And then you go to culinary school. Mm -hmm. And then when does Top Chef come into the picture, which for many people is sort of their first exposure to you on a national level? Right. So to give you some... A time frame. I was 30 years old when I went to culinary school. Uh-huh. And then I did Top Chef at 42. Okay. So, so 12 years yes. of working in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mainly catering, catering and, okay. and um, private chefing. So then you go on to Top Chef as one of the contestants. And I think I've read that you considered yourself one of the weaker contestants. Like I did. you had that thought internally looking around at your peers. I did. I did. I considered myself one of the. The weaker ones, because, you know, people come in with this attitude and bravado mm-hmm. and they're young. And, and at the time I thought, oh, they're young and they know what they want to do. So it's interesting that you ask me that now. And I've never put two and two together because I had just found food and I knew that I wanted to do it. Right. And I saw these people as very clear about what they wanted to do. And they were 10 years younger than I was. And that was intimidating in some way. Like they had, I, I they had think, realized that earlier in life. So maybe they had a leg up in that mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. In my head, I think I thought that. And they were working in, they were working in pedigreed restaurants. A lot of them were working in, um, well-known restaurants and just established. Yeah. And, and so you appear on the show and you start to sort of turn back to some of the dishes of your childhood, some of the things your grandmother had cooked to sort of, I think I've read that you said you did that in some ways to sort of come back to that comfort because it was nerve wracking in that environment. Yeah. I can imagine. 
<laughs> having never been on reality TV, I can only imagine what that's like. I was really stressed and I was making food that I actually wanted to eat. So the, the interesting thing about that is that we went back to our house where we lived and I would bring the food that I made for a challenge back to the house. Okay. So I, I was focused on, okay, yes. To, for the, the other judges, contestants? No, for myself. Oh, for yourself. Eat. Okay. Yeah, got it. <laughs> You're not sharing. <laughs> I mean, they could eat if they wanted sure. to, but you know, I wasn't thinking about the judges. Yeah. You know, you think about, let me, let me make this food in this, within this time limit, but also let me make something delicious that I want to eat. Yeah. Were there other lessons you learned from your time on Top Chef that influenced you as you moved forward? The other thing that hit me when I was standing at the judges table one day when I thought I was going to go home, it was restaurant wars. And I was like, my heart was just beating out of my chest. And I said, wait a minute. Nobody has ever died here. I'm not going to die. Why, why am I, honestly, why am I this afraid? I'm just going to go back to my life and start working. It's fine. And I think that having that aha moment while I was still in the game and if I didn't go home, that's when, that was the turn for me. Yeah. And so you leave Top Chef. Yeah. And I, I don't want to condense everything you've done since then by any means, because you've done many wonderful things, but you go on to write two other cookbooks. Yes. What's that process like before we get into your third cookbook? It's like um, being creative on demand. You know, it's the pressure of somebody paying you to be creative. And I, and I found that very difficult. But Genevieve Coe, who's my co-author, mm-hmm. was amazing. And we had to figure out a way for me to continue with my creativity in this process. And so I would want to dump something in the pot. She's like, whoa, 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 what was that? And she's following me with a, a pencil and pad. Sure. And so I had to come up with this way of just putting things that I might use in increments. So half cups, half teaspoons, tablespoons, whatever. And then I would dump them in. And so it would be my creative process. And then I would go back and count the things that I used. So for me, that was a better way of processing my creativity because I can't think, oh, I'm right now, I'm about to put in one cup. Right. You know, I had to have to be able to dump and, and let my creative process flow. It's that part of coming up with the recipes. Well, first sitting down and thinking, what is this book going to be about? But it's always in every book that I've written, one dish that seals the deal for me. It's like, okay, this is what this book is about. And then from there, it's that click. In the first book, it was the Callaloo. In the second book, it was the Smothered Chicken, doing it different ways. And in the third book, it was the okra and tomato stew. Yeah, which I want to talk about because I love the technique that you use there. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, So you have these two cookbooks under your belt. Mm -hmm. You're co-hosting a TV show. So many great successful things going on. You go to your literary agent with your concept for your third book. Mm -hmm. And I believe they sort of balked a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, she was like, no, you shouldn't do that. But you should not do soul food because you're going to ostracize your very broad audience. And, um, And I took offense to that. Yeah. Because nobody would say that to an Italian chef. Like Mm -hmm. if an Italian chef comes in and says, Oh, I want to do Italian food. They're like, great. Yay. You know, if you are Greek or Korean or Chinese, Hey, this, this is the book I want to do. Great. But it's a very interesting dynamic with being African American and, um, and feeling like it's only for African Americans. Yeah. And so. But I'm Taurus. So as soon as somebody tells me no, <laughs> I dig in my heels and then I want to do it even more. Right. And so I, I, I just felt like this is the book that I want to do. And then when we, we said we were going to do it, then I, um, 
I felt like I had a, a writer's block. I'm like, the things aren't flowing. I just don't want this book to be, oh, let me think about what recipes to put in it. I really wanted it to come from a place of authenticity. Yeah. And um, I said, I really want to go on this Southern road trip. And right. she's like, you really shouldn't go on the road trip. I'm like, oh, I'm going on the road trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no questions. Yeah. And, and that was the best thing. I want to linger on this this bit with the publisher too, or the, yeah. the literary agent, because you have such a brand, you have such mm-hmm. exposure, you, you know, people have called you the most visible black person and working in the food industry in America. And yet you're getting pushback mm-hmm. from folks in the industry, right. from folks in the cookbook industry. How are you sort of like seeing that manifest itself, particularly as, as a show on the cookbook industry and cookbooks for other chefs and cooks of color, particularly black chefs across the country today? I mean, the thing that I know, um, when Tony Tipton Martin did her book, Jamama Code, mm-hmm. she fought for that. For five years, she fought to do that book. And and look, it, it was such a big success. And there are all of these other people that I know who fought for their book. Not that they were African-American, but they fought for their book because sure. that was the book that was in their heart. Sure. And so remembering stories that I heard, and knowing how I felt about this book, I'm like, I have to do this book. And I think that in the industry, in the publishing industry, in PR, they try to tell you who you're supposed to be. And what is missing is that X factor that this thing is coming up in me because it's something that has to be told. And you have no idea what's inside. You just have to trust. If you, if you're bringing me in to do my book, please let me do my book. Because you like, and there, and there are not a lot of black people in the publishing world. Yeah. So how are you going to be able to tell me how to be black? Were you compelled to write this book for a bigger reason than just telling your own personal story too? Because you have such a platform, because you have such a brand, was that an impetus for you as well? Yes. Um, I know for this book, there are so many chefs, black chefs out there who aren't seen. There are, and I wanted to use my platform for a, a bigger thing to, to tell a story about African Americans to, I didn't need to do another book with just recipes. I, I didn't really care to do that. Yeah. But to really showcase our culture and, and to say, Hey, we are all here. And, and I've never wanted to be an only, like an, on, the only black or the first black. My whole thing is I want to come in with a posse. I want to come in with my culture. And I know that there are other people doing books, uh, way, before I was doing this book, but those books fell by the wayside. And I think it's for them. It's for all of these people, the Jessica Harris's, the um, Alexander Smalls, the all of these chefs that I know, these black chefs that their voices aren't heard, but I know they're there. So it's for them. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Carla Hall. Right now, we're chatting with Bonnie Benwick, deputy food editor at The Washington Post. We called up Bonnie to discuss her recent article that asks the question, why did food media ignore the best-selling cookbook of 2018? Let's find out. Hi, Bonnie. How are you? Hi. So you just wrote a piece that I wanted to talk to you about briefly uh, called, Why Did the Food Media Ignore the Best-Selling Cookbook of 2018? Tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write that and maybe a little bit about the best-selling book of 2018 and what you learned in this process. Sure. Every year I am responsible for doing a best-of cookbook list, and it's a job that I take seriously. In my list, which is sometimes, you know, it used to be, you know, like a top 10, but I 
I sort of exploded it because I think people want to buy cookbooks for different things. So I tend to put maybe 20 in my list, you know, and categorize them. And this year, I happened to notice the Magnolia Table Cookbook by Joanna Gaines popped up on bestseller list at the Washington Post and in the New York Times on and off. I was just astounded to see that it was by far the best-selling cookbook. And when I started looking around for who'd included it on their lists of, you know, not very many of us had. It, it had gotten some media coverage in USA Today, uh, Better Homes and Gardens, you know, sort of when the book comes out. And the book had come out, by the way, last April. They had this kind of long lead time from April through the end of the year for this book to sell, and sell it did. I think we're up to like 1.4 million copies, but the HarperCollins PR person told me there are over 2 million copies of it in print. Which is just mind-blowing. I mean, you talk about it being the number one best-selling cookbook of the year, but across all genres, right? It was the number two best-selling book of any genre in, in all of 2018. Right, right after the Michelle Obama autobiography. And and that's fascinating. You've been writing about and tracking and following cookbooks in the food industry for a while now. Is that sort of rare to see a cookbook do so well in its first, you know, seven, eight months? Well, I think, um, well, let's take a, a recent example. You know, uh, well, Ida Garten's books always do well. Sure. But I would. Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Say in any given year, and I'm just really skying it here, you know, like in, in that period of time, she'd sell 50,000 books or 75,000 books. I mean, that that's a lot. And Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which had the benefit of the Netflix companion series. I mean, that was a book that, that really offered something new and she was a fresh voice. And that book with a lead time of like a year and a half, a year and three quarters sold over 300,000 copies. And that's, an, again, an astounding number. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that just blew my mind is you included in this piece that Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking has sold one and a half million copies over 50-something years. Isn't that just the killer? I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, from 1961 or, what, you know, yeah, 61. whenever that was. I think it was 61. Yeah, just like, and that's, uh, as far as I understand, to be clear, I think that's volume one. Right. Um, but that would be the total since then, which is crazy. Yeah, I thought my mother and everybody's mother was cooking out of that book, you know, every minute of every day. But I, I don't know. I mean, it, it made me also think, the, the, in researching this uh, story, it made me also think about what America is really eating. You know, we tend to, I'm very East Coast oriented. I've lived on the East Coast my whole life. You know, there's a whole West Coast mode of food and eating more healthfully and you know, that sort of spread backwards across the, you know, other parts of the country. But the vast heartland of America maybe just doesn't care so much about what the top cookbook is. You know, they, you know, I, I feel like maybe I was out, really out of touch with, you know, it's not like I don't like a, I, I want to make it clear. I don't, it's not like I don't like a casserole 
because it has cream of mushroom soup in it. The reason why the book didn't originally, didn't immediately appeal to me when it landed on my desk back in April was because I had seen a lot of these recipes before. I, I didn't, I hadn't tested any at that point, obviously, but I was looking at biscuits and meatloaf and it's absolutely things that people make all the time. And I, I like a good meatloaf and I, you know, chocolate chip cookies. I mean, who doesn't have a recipe that they already like? I mean, I'll always try a new one, but it seemed to me, you know, that it was an, a pretty, a nicely done book of that kind of food that you could get from like allrecipes.com or whatever, but it obviously deserves some attention because a whole lot of people bought it. Sure. Well, I'm so glad you wrote this piece. I think it's a really fascinating look at what we know is the number two selling book of the year and certainly the best selling cookbook. And I'm I'm curious if we're going to have the same conversation in 11 or 12 months from now about another cookbook that we just didn't see coming. Well, I'll, I will be here, Brian, so check back with me. <laughs> we certainly will. We certainly will. Well, thanks so much, Bonnie. This was great. Thank you. And now back to our conversation with cookbook author Carla Hall. We want to talk about the road trip. I know you want to talk about the road trip. So you start in Charleston. Is that yes. right? Uh-huh. First stop. Um, and why did you choose Charleston? Um, I was working with a food historian, Tanya Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And so when we were putting this trip together, we were like, how many cities can we go through? We only had a finite amount of time. Sure. So we honestly were looking for as much diversity in the South that we could do driving. Okay. Um, and so we flew into Charleston and then we went to Savannah, but it, it was really just time. Yeah. You know, and then from there, we're like, who can we see in Charleston? Who can we see in Savannah? Who can we see in Birmingham, Selma, you know, uh, Montgomery? What things can we see? Who can we see in Jackson? And, and all, that's how everything came together. I mean, we, we shifted the trip so many different ways, you know. And we see these wonderful little excerpts throughout the cookbook yeah. of the people who you're meeting with. Yes. Like, you know, people like Cindy Akers Elliott, who, was living in Manhattan and left New York City after mm-hmm. 9-11 to go back to, to wh- where is she based? She's based in uh, Mississippi. In Mississippi. So um, to go back of to Jackson. Mississippi mm-hmm. and start this farm yes. and it, it's education, it's community gardening. We see stories of you going to Mother Emanuel Church. Tell us about some of these experiences that you had. So we, like you said, we went to Mother Emanuel Church and mm-hmm. we, we were debating whether or not we should go mm-hmm. because um, the shooting had happened a year before. And we're like, what is the energy going to be like? And then in the end, we decided to go. And it was their 99th anniversary of that church. Yeah. And the singing, the the joyousness, even now I get, I get goosebumps just thinking about it and how that church community, just the community in general where Mother Emmanuel is, was so close knit and they weren't, they were still rejoicing in their faith and in their community. And then there was, um, the ladies, the, the church ladies cooking in the basement for the repast. And, um, and even though I hadn't been in that church, I know that church, you know, I know the black church. I know what it's like to go on Sunday and have the repast and have the food, you know, and have everybody, you know, um, coming down and the culture in the kitchen, like sister so-and-so is making her, her thing and you can't come in her church. And by the way, it didn't matter if I was on television because when I went in that kitchen, they were like, who are you? And why are you in my kitchen? <laughs> and they have a job to do and you're right. in their way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It was just beautiful. Yeah. 
there's these incredibly powerful moments. The other one we just heard a bit from you on earlier before we started the conversation is in Selma. You also stop at Lanny's Barbecue. There's all of these sort of touch points to civil rights movement, to these really historical contexts and these people, and then also people who are doing things today. I mean, you know, Lanny's is still serving delicious barbecue mm-hmm. today, but also people who have gone back to the farms of their grandparents and are growing food today on their ancestors' land. Can you talk about a, a little bit about that connect between sort of the past and the present that I think is sort of a through line in your cookbook too? Yes. And that, that was, and, and that was the reason I think intuitively, and I didn't really know why I was going back through this journey. And it's that it's connecting mm-hmm. the past to, um, the present and then hopefully into the future. So Lanny's barbecue, we go to Lanny's, we ask, um, Lanny's daughter runs it now. We're like, you know, can we meet Lanny? Yeah. She's across the street. What? And we go to her house uh-huh. and here we are meeting Lanny and she is showing us a picture of the woman that Oprah played in Selma, the one that who got hit in the face, and I forget yeah. her name right now. But I'm like, oh my gosh, who we couldn't have even planned that. This was purely impromptu. And, and that's what that trip was about. We met with Matthew Rayford, who um has the farm in the larder, who went back to his family farm, and his family has owned that farm since 1860. And he just knew he wasn't going to be a farmer. He tried to run away from it. And his grandmother kept saying, baby, you're going to be back. <laughs> and he was. And, and how he and his wife are tied to that farm and the, the things that they are doing because of that farm and the community that they're building. It, it was so exciting to see because I think, um, in this food world, I don't get that. And what I realized on this trip, I don't have a Southern food community. Because I didn't start cooking in Nashville. That mm. is my heritage and that is where I'm from. But I started cooking when I was in Washington, D.C. And that's right. not really the South. And so going back, I, I realized that I was quenching this thirst that I didn't know I had. Yeah. Could you have done this book without that tour? No, I, absolutely. I, I know unequivocally I couldn't have done this book without that tour. I needed to go back with the intention of finding these things. And it's like when you have an intention to discover and uncover, that's, you find those things. You, you, and that's why we had surprise after surprise after surprise because we went back with that intention. Yeah. You also go to the Gola Geechee area to the Gola Islands, mm-hmm. which I was so happy to see you did because I feel like it gets so little attention for its food history for the practices that they continue to hold today. Uh-huh. How'd you decide to include that area and that region and that culture? It was about book? BJ Dennis. Okay. BJ Dennis um, was one of the names that came up and I didn't know him uh, that Tanya, Tanya Hopkins mentioned, you have to meet BJ Dennis. And not only is he a wonderful chef, but he's also instrumental in bringing some of these heritage grains and the red hill rice and some of these beans and okra um, and just cooking with these things. A lot, a lot of the work that um, he's doing, Michael Twitty, yep. you know, also does. And it, and it was all new to me. And I was just, wow. And, and to talk to BJ's mom and to ask her, you know, what was it like? What did you have, you know, when you were growing up, you know, and she's like, oh, we had shrimp and grits. And so in my mind, 
I'm thinking of shrimp and grits that I know today, sure. you know, full of fat and gravy and all of this. And she was like, no, it was just shrimp that we caught that was really sweet and delicious. And then plain grits with the bay leaf, salt and pepper. That's it. And then the, then they would have like maybe some tomatoes and peppers and onions and that would have these natural juices. It was right. very clean. Right. Which is why I did this recipe in my cookbook. And I was like, Oh, because again, it's the difference between celebration and every day. The foods that African Americans ate back in the day are foods that you can survive on. But if you keep the foods in this very narrow perspective, you can't survive on those celebration foods. And in any culture, really, when yep. you think about Italian food, you know, Italians don't eat lasagna every day. Right. You know, they don't eat big meatballs every day and chunks of all this ricotta cheese and mozzarella every day. You know, those are celebration foods. Let's talk about some of the foods in your book, then uh, some of the recipes in your book. So there is the shrimp and grits. There's also the recipe that we alluded to a bit earlier with the okra. So I want to I want to talk about this because I love okra, but I also sort of have a little bit of an aversion to the sliminess that it yes. can get. So tell us how you treat okra and particularly in the recipe with the chunky tomato soup. So can I tell you that I don't like okra? You can. I don't yes. like okra. <laughs> Period. <laughs> no, but I, you know what? When I don't like something, I have to ask myself, why don't I like it? And it was the texture. It was this, um, sometimes those seeds. So I have to have okra and friends, okra and acid. Okay. So, and, and I tell, as a cook, you want me to not like it because I'm going to suss out how I can eat this thing. So for me, it's whatever I don't like and friends. So okra and friends. So I cut the okra into small coins and then I roast it, toss it in oil and roast it in a really hot oven until it becomes charred. And then with the tomato part, and this is a dish that comes from your typical stewed tomatoes and okra. It's very popular in soul food. So then I stew the tomatoes with the aromatics with onions and garlic and then water, mm -hmm. you know, make it really brothy. And then when you get ready to eat, you have this loose, brothy tomato stew, and then you drop in the okra and that charred okra with color because there's flavor in the brown. And yes. I'm always telling people it permeates through this broth. And when you're eating it, you're like, oh, my gosh, this feels like stewed okra and tomatoes, except that it's brothy and it's light and delicious. And this was the recipe that informed me of what I wanted to do with this book. I don't want to take away the food memories, but I also want to think about how people eat today, think about how our bodies are, because we're not working it off, you know, walking and, you know, in the fields. Not that everybody was in the fields, but I think that this is the kind of food that we like today, but I still want that food memory of these flavors. Were cookbooks a part of your life growing up? You mentioned your mom didn't cook a lot. Your grandmas did. No, they no. weren't. They didn't play a factor. When did they sort of start to become part of your life? Cookbooks started to become a part of my life when I was catering. And I hadn't been to culinary school yet when I had the lunch delivery service. So when I would go through the aisles of the grocery store and there would be these specialty magazines, sure, uh, I would buy those. When I was in Europe and I was like, oh, I love this. I would go to the American bookstore and get a cookbook. And then I would cook for the people who was allowing me to stay on their couch. Uh -huh. So um, my collections of cookbooks started at that point. And then I started asking my grandmother, hey, do you have cookbooks? Or hey, so-and-so, do you have cookbooks? And then I started sort of bringing cookbooks in. But I don't remember looking at cookbooks prior to 
25. And you've mentioned a few authors. Are there particular cookbook authors who have been influential for you over the course of your career? Edna Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her food. Um, I love what she did for um, soul food and, you know, raising the bar. I love, in terms of Southern cooks, Shirley Corher, because um, I that part that you said when I was an accountant, mm-hmm. my brain works in puzzles. Okay. So I want to understand why things work the way they work. And so when I went to culinary school, it's like, okay, I have the I have the experience, the street experience, but I want the theory. And so with Shirley Corriher's book, Cook Wise and Bake Wise, she tells you why it's happening. Right. Um, and why it's going to work, why it's going to fail. So that is power. And if you're not going to go to culinary school, get a book like that that tells you why things are going to work. Do you think cookbooks play a particularly unique role in helping preserve culinary traditions in a way that restaurants or other sort of institutions can't? We've talked about some of the restaurants you visited in the South, 70 plus years Mm -hmm. serving food, a lot of history there. But do cookbooks sort of play a different role in preserving traditions, recipes? Unequivocally, yes. And I tell you why, and just in my own family, when I first, when I did my first cookbook, Cooking with Love, it came out in October. No, it came out in the beginning of November. And for Thanksgiving, I said to my family, I no longer have to make the dinner myself. You're getting a recipe, you're getting a recipe, and you're getting a recipe. And then everybody cooked and they were so proud of the, the dishes that they made because one, we were doing it together. Two, they had a roadmap. And I think that, um, culture moves through understanding how to cook its food. You know, when you understand how to cook the food in that culture, you continue that culture. If you have stopped cooking and you don't have a cookbook to point to, then you're going to lose the culture. And I think things change an awful lot in restaurants because people are always looking for the newest, the brightest, the trends. And so it's constantly changing. And also you cook very differently in a restaurant. And if you're not doing it, you may be eating that culture, but you're not experiencing and touching it and, and replicating that culture. Right. So we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd play a quick little fun game that was in some part inspired by your road trip through the South. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, you took this 10-day road trip, and we thought we'd play a little game called the Carla Hall Road Trip. And I'm going to give you like four or five little prompts, and you can give me a response for what fits that prompt. Okay. All right. So we're on a road trip with Carla Hall. What's our road trip snack? Almonds. So boring, but it really is true. Yeah. Just plain almonds. Oh, just roasted. Almonds. I mean, I'm not. I'm not criticizing <laughs> that that choice in um, any way. It's a it's a great road trip. Snack. I I, yeah. I know. I always had them. Yeah. You never know when you're going to be hungry. Okay. How about road trip audio? Ooh. Music, podcasts, audiobooks. What are we listening to? So a little bit of both. So definitely an audiobook because okay. I have a stash, and then we listen to a lot of blues. The person who was driving got to choose what they were listening to. Smart. Yeah. That's a good tactic. Mm-hmm. How about your road trip accessory? What must you have with you? Uh, let me think. What was in my suitcase? Um, the thing uh, you can't travel without. <laughs> the thing, thing that I can't. Okay. Oh, this is so embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you. It's a bonnet. Okay. A, a bonnet for my hair. Okay. It's a silk bonnet for my hair. Yeah. yeah. It's not embarrassing. Okay. It's you. It's important. <laughs> How about a car game? Do you have a favorite car game you play on a long drive? Um, yes, I Spy. 
Okay, good one. Mm-hmm. And final one. Oh, the other oh, one. Yeah. Sorry, the no? other one. You know, when you go on a picnic and you have to like say, when I went on a picnic and you have to go through the alphabet and had a thing. When I'm on a picnic, I'm going to apples, and the next person when I'm picking on apples and blueberries, and you have to go to the. I've never played that. So you just keep adding based on the letter of the alphabet. Yes, and it's a memory game. Okay, mm-hmm. I like that. Okay, final one. What's your road trip no-no? Somebody oh. in the car can't do this, or you can't have that happening. Not rolling down the windows if you get windy. Okay, got it. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, it sounds like a fun road trip. Well, thank you so much, Carla. It was so great to have you. Thank you. And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, Brian. I'm doing well, thanks. Great. So we just sat down with Carla Hall to talk about her latest cookbook, and I'm hoping you have something to share with us. Oh, I love Carla. She's yes. such a, a dynamic and wonderful speaker and person. She came and gave a talk about her new book, Carla Hall's Soul Food, when uh, she was here in town. And I loved how she connected the foods from Africa and from African-American slaves who had come over to today's soul food. She really, I was so glad that she didn't shy away from that. Sometimes her personality on television is so laid back and welcoming and open. And um, that's really how she is in real life, which is great. But I was so thrilled that she wasn't shying away from talking about slavery and the very difficult history behind how we get our soul food, and that so many of those foods come from Africa. You know, rice uh, rice mm-hmm. planting was brought over from Africans uh, who were enslaved and taught white plantation owners how to plant. You know, that sort of thing she incorporates into her recipes and into her book. And so I really appreciated that that was the sort of thing that she talked about, and it's got yeah. a lot of African influence as well as Southern American. I mean, white watermelon salad with radishes is a very Southern thing. But then she's got marinated fried plantains, keluele, which is, you know, African based. So it's really wonderful that she weaves those together in her new book. Yeah, I love that you noted that she didn't shy away from things because it's this really personal cookbook, a lot about her heritage and bringing that in. But also she does this tour through the South and goes to Charleston and goes to various places, goes to the Gullah Islands, includes some of the Gullah Geechee cuisine. Mm -hmm. And that's just so fascinating fascinating. to see her bring all of that in and tie that together. Definitely. Yeah, it was it was a nice change to see her really embracing that past and bringing it to people who may not have been aware of it in the past. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Anytime. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find a recipe for Carla Hall's Chunky Tomato Soup with Roasted Okra Rounds. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and, of course, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. A special thanks this week to Bonnie Benwick of The Washington Post. You can also find links to Bonnie's work and recipes on our website. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.